If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien with Nicole Braddock-Bromley. Deputy Mike Barnett asked Gary Ploche, why Gary, Gary, why? Seconds after television cameras recorded Gary shooting and killing karate instructor Jeff Doucette, who had raped, molested, and kidnapped Gary's son, Jody. Now, 35 years later, Jody Ploche answers the deputy's question on behalf of his late father and explores the story of his molestation, kidnapping, and survival. He unveils the sly tactics that child predators often use so that he can better inform parents of the potential signs that a person might harm their child. Through his own incredible story of using his past for good by helping others, he shares how any reader who has suffered great trauma can move on and not let the past define him or her. You have the potential to overcome negativity and redefine your own story. Jody Ploche is a very good friend of mine going way back, years back to seriously my very first year of speaking, which was like 16 years ago. And Jody just released his book. He's been an advocate for years and years, but he's just been a great support to me. And I'm thrilled to have Jody back on our podcast today for the second time because he just put his book out called Why Gary Why. Welcome to our podcast again, Jody. Great to be back. (laughs) Good. Well, let's just dive into your book and I want to hear everything about it, the writing process, how you're feeling now that it's out, um, and then we'll unpack kind of the topics within it. But just share with us a little bit about, you know, your book and how you're feeling about it. Well, the book took a long time to actually be complete. I first started writing the book in 1993, and, you know, I was 21 years old. I had just finished my English uh, composition class. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to write a book. Mm. And so I just sat down. And I just started just telling the story. Yeah. And looking back, because I didn't rediscover this writing. It was like 27,000 words. I didn't rediscover this writing until about two years ago. Wow. And the references were old. Uh-huh. For example, I mentioned something about my brother riding this horse. That was like a really old horse. Uh-huh. And I made the joke that George Burns must have got it as a child. That was in 1993. George right. Burns was still alive. Alive, yeah. Now, so when I reread it, he's been dead 20 years. Now, half the people who would read the book wouldn't know who George Burns were, so I changed it to Betty White. So I updated it. Okay. And I was able to. And lied. The, so, so you told your first lie in your book. <laughs> it wasn't Betty White. <laughs> I'll just no, it. It, it, it was like Betty White's first horse, like it was given to her when she was a child. <laughs> I see, I oh see. Oh, my goodness. That's, that, that's how old the horse was. So, uh, <laughs> and then there was another thing that I did is I, I had to go through and, and use modern-day references. Like I used like a, 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 like something like checking your Instagram or your Snapchat. So I threw in like modern terms to this old writing. I and see. Then in, two, in 2017, I hired a book writing company to help me write it. Yeah. And so we were able to – do two set. I mean, when you read the book, it's almost like two separate books. One's like me telling the story, and another one's kind of like a manual mm. for advocacy and awareness for parents mm. and knowledge. And, and 
So, and you can almost tell the different writing styles, but I still, even in the, the, what the book writing company did, I still had to go through and, uh, you know, fine tune it and make it my work. And mm-hmm. so, uh, like I said, it, I started it in 93. Um, but when I was, when I was done with that bit of the book, I didn't feel like there was enough. Like I hadn't graduated college. I hadn't worked seven years at victim services center doing education. And I was a certified sexual assault counselor for seven years. I used to train, uh, new employees and volunteers. And so I didn't feel like in 93, I had the information I needed to put out the book I wanted to. That's why Mm -hmm. I pursued the path of graduating from college and working at victim services so I could have that information. Mm -hmm. And I tried to make myself as much of an expert in the field as I could. Yeah. And I really respect that, Jody. I think, you know, there's many survivors who have that aspiration. They, they, they dream of writing their book, writing their story, sharing it with others um, to help others, but also part of their own healing. But um, it's something that's like immediate, right? And they just want to get it out. But like you have sat on this book for years and years because of what you just said. And I met you when you were an advocate in Pennsylvania and I've watched you develop over the years and, you know, the conferences that you continue to speak at and working with other survivors and just, you know, you have. You have over time become the expert that now you're at a place and also in your healing journey, too, to be able to put this out and feel really good about it um, because you're in a good place personally, professionally. You've done your work and, and and here it is. Here's your story. But here is also the educational tools for, I think, parents especially to really hold on to and, and absorb through through your writing. So. I think it's really respectful that you sat on it so long and then put it out when the time was right. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I didn't do this for money. I mean, I did it because I wanted people to have the knowledge and that's, that's why yeah. I sat on it. Cause I, you know, I, I, I said this to the guy when he, he did the local reporter, he, he did an interview with me yeah. and I said it to him and, and he couldn't, he couldn't print it. Like he was like, he even called me and was like, I was going back listening to our interview, and he goes, you know, it was kind of funny what you said. He goes, but I, I can't put this. I was like, I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll just say it every, next time I do an interview. But I, like my dad, mm-hmm. that night in the airport, mm-hmm. I knew I, I had one shot to get it right. That's why I waited so long. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> only you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that writer wouldn't put it. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, and, you know, for those who are, are listening and, and haven't tuned in the, to our podcast long enough to have heard you a couple of years ago um, sharing your story, would you mind just kind of recapping a little bit of that before we get into to some more of your book? I'll give you a quick little update. When I was in yeah. fifth grade, I started taking karate. My karate instructor was a child molester. Uh, who took a liking to me. He grew my family. He grew me. Um, he took advantage of my family's trust, and he started sexually abusing me. Uh, if you don't count the, the, the testing of the boundaries, uh, the, you know, the actual mm-hmm. uh, you know, graphic sexual abuse probably started in April of 1983 mm-hmm. and continued until February of 1984 when he kidnapped me because he owed people money and he had a court date coming up. So he was avoiding prosecution, so he skipped town. And when mm-hmm. he skipped town, since I was his love interest, he took me from my home in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. We stopped off in Port Arthur, Texas at his mom's house for two days, and then we took a bus from Orange, Texas to Los Angeles. Eventually, uh, on February 28th, I believe, he was arrested 
in Anaheim, California. They took me to the police station and questioned me, then to the hospital, mm-hmm. and then to, like, this child's home for a day. Mm-hmm. And then I flew back to New Orleans on March 1st, 1984. He refused extradition for a couple of weeks, and on March 16th, 1984, it was a Friday night, he was flown back to Baton Rouge with uh, two sheriff's deputies from the Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office. And uh, as he was walking through the Baton Rouge Airport, which uh, Nicole has been to. That's right. As he walked through the Baton Rouge Airport, my father was on a payphone. Um, he had learned from the local news station that he was coming back at like 9 o'clock that night. Mm-hmm. And he turned and shot him and it was captured on video. Yeah. Live news. There wasn't a live broadcast. It was oh. recorded. But the shooting took place about 9.30. They immediately drove to the news station. And this is something I just found out that I thought was pretty clever. The cameraman, about a minute after the shooting happened, changed tapes. And he did that in case police wanted uh, the tape as evidence so that they could view it. And that way he would have the original. Wow. So he could give them the wrong tape. Yeah, I just learned that. Woo. I literally learned it like the week before I sent the book to the publisher. No way. And wow. Yeah, I, I just Googled an article and, and I was like, wow, I didn't know that. And then on my website, I have the graphic footage. It's like the unedited version of the, the shooting. And you can see at the 104 mark where, where the tape kind of fizzes and you could tell where he changed tapes. Oh, my gosh. He was thinking. Yeah, that was pretty smart after just filming a murder a minute ago, you know. Yeah. yeah. And then ultimately... <laughs> My dad pled no contest to manslaughter and was sentenced to five years probation and 300 hours community service. About the same amount of time you get for a, a DWI. Wow. And that was in what year? 1984. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, quite a story. And I know it's been on so many different television shows and recently ESPN and things like that. And you've gotten a lot of coverage for that story. And you've been so brave to share it just unashamedly and... um it's really cool to see also your family not only protect you, seek your justice, but support your healing journey. I just recently learned that there's a lot of symbolism on the cover of your book. Is that right? There is. So through the process of developing the cover, I knew what I wanted. I wanted to show after the shooting, the cameraman zooms in on my dad and like you can just see the pain on his face. He has on hat, sunglasses. He's got a beard, but you can just see that he, you know, he was crying Mm-hmm. And you can see it. And I kind of wanted that because I wanted the picture of my dad because it was like literally the worst moment of his life, mm-hmm. you know, and I wanted that to be kind of, you know, honored in a way. Well, through the process of working on the book, we came up with uh, the shirt that he had on was purple and white stripes. So mm-hmm. the, if you look at the cover, it is symbolic to the shirt that my father had on the night of the shooting. So yeah. it, it kind of it, mir- it mirrors the shirt. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting, and how you did that. I I love book covers, so I thought that was that was pretty cool and pretty thoughtful of you. So I'm wondering, who do you feel is the main audience then for your book? Why Gary? Why? You know, I I really honestly hate to say pretty much everybody, but mm-hmm. um, I but think you want to sell parents, the book to everybody, so that's what you say. Exactly. Exactly. No, but parents. Yeah, parents. Uh, parents can benefit. For sure. Survivors. Yeah. Yeah. I think can benefit. Mm-hmm. I think um, literally since basically the main story took place when I was in sixth, seventh grade. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I think even, you know, students as young as seventh, eighth grade should read it because it yeah. it has a lot of stuff about 
you know, teens and sexting and how that they can get in trouble. Okay. And, you know, yeah. little boys think it's cute, you know, in high school to take pictures of their girlfriends or, or get nude photos of their girlfriends sent to them and then share them with everybody. And then, I mean, that's illegal. Mm-hmm. And so it can even prevent uh, perpetrators if they have the knowledge, because they're not even thinking that this would be something that's illegal. So I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, definitely students, survivors, parents. Yeah. Um, so you've really modernized it then to even education when it comes to technology. Yes. Wow. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's really great. I think that's one thing that my books are really missing, considering that, you know, they were published before all of that. One of one of the cases, I mean, I mentioned Steubenville, and one of the cases was uh, North Penn High School, which was in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, where I used to work. Uh-huh. So that, you know, was close uh-huh. to home. Wow. That's great. Yeah, I think that's something that is so important in this day and age, just educating young people on those types of things they have no clue what they're getting into and parents are just giving them all these opportunities to fail because they're not educating them they're arming them with what phones and then just letting them loose without any education or protection on for themselves so that's a really great part i think to your book that's great and i wonder have your abusers family members ever tried to contact you has that ever been a fear no. of yours in putting in publishing something? <laughs> no, but uh, hmm. I I'll didn't figure. You, but <laughs> it's not, it's not a, it's, you're not afraid of nobody. <laughs> well, no, no, and I'll say this. I mean, I had one guy kind of message me on on Facebook and say, you know, are you going to donate any of your money to the victim's family because Jeff was Doucette was a victim. You know, he didn't get a chance to tell his story. Ew. And I told the guy, I was like, have you read the book? I'm like, read the book. He's like, Jeff deserves his day in court. I'm like, read the book. I, I say that. Mm-hmm. Jeff's brother fought in Vietnam, okay? And Jeff's brother fought for the right of every American who is accused of a crime to have their day told in court. So Jeff absolutely deserves his day in court. Mm-hmm. I'm not disputing that. Sure. I also You've also said why- on major uh, broadcasts that you didn't want your dad to take Jeff's life. So that's never been something you've wanted. Exactly. So I told the guy, I said, read the book, and I think you'll feel differently about how mm. I feel about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely understand why my father did what he did, and I don't sure. have any problem with, you know, Jeff's murder being viewed 27 million times on YouTube <laughs> because he was a, a, not a very good person. Wow. Um, but I'll never, I'll, you'll never hear me say Jeff didn't deserve his day in court because uh, he does. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean I, in a way – and I've never really felt like this, but in a way, I didn't get my day in court either. I right. didn't get a chance to tell my story. Yeah, so, I feel the same yeah. way. Yeah, I can look at the silver lining of my stepfather taking his life and, and your abuser, you know, yeah. his life being taken. I mean, that definitely took the edge off in a lot of ways for us <laughs> yeah. moving forward. <laughs> However, I think we both would agree we would have loved to see justice in real life. I saw someone on YouTube, they, you know, the the video of my dad shooting him, and uh, someone commented like, you know, the father was wrong. What if the kid was lying? And you know what? I commented back. I said, I, I said I did lie. I lied for two weeks. That's true. I lied saying Jeff never Didn't touched me. Do it. Yeah, that's mm, so true. Yeah. Yep. People so, are horrible. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Boy, the, the, those Twitter warriors and you know anonymous mm. YouTube message board people. Oh, they're so much fun. I had one guy. This is, I'll tell you, I was, uh, this is a 
uh, message board called Tiger Dropping. You know, it's just a message board. And whenever I was on ESPN back in September of uh, 2013, Mm. there was this guy, uh, his handle was Tiger Rag. That was his uh, handle on Tiger Dropping. And he knew just enough about my story Mm. to where he would get a lot right. But then he would be so wrong on a lot of other stuff. And, I, I mean, I was like, man, did I take your girlfriend in high school? Like, what's the problem with me? <laughs> yeah. And one day I was sitting at a restaurant, TJ Ribs. I mentioned I mentioned them in the book because they got the best smoke wings, sauce on side that you'll ever have. And- <laughs> I'll tell you, for everybody listening, Jody loves to cook. And he's an amazing cook. Oh, and he's held this wow. over my head for years and years that I owe him a steak, which isn't true. <laughs> You owe me a cow, my man. Oh, wow. <laughs> but anyway, so he knows everything so about that good southern cooking. So I'm sitting TJ Ribs, yes. and this guy's on Tiger Droppings next to me. He's got like this little iPad, and he's on Tiger Droppings. Well, what Tiger Dropping does is when you post, your post immediately goes to the top. So I waited until he hit enter, and when I did, I went to Tiger Droppings real quick, and it was Tiger Rag. It was that guy that had been ragging me out on the message board, this anonymous uh, anonymous guy. Well, we yeah. ended up becoming friends. We ended up becoming friends, and but I was able to figure out why he had such an issue with me when he was the anonymous person. Yeah, is because he worked with Jeff's brother. Oh, and so that, that, that's how he knew just enough because he was like, you know, how much money have you gotten paid for your uh, uh, talk show appearances? Uh, zero. Yeah. I've made no money off of torture. I mean, Oprah might have all the money, but she don't give it out. You know? <laughs> you get a car. You, you get, get a, a car. car. You get yeah. nothing, Jody Ploche. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that was my Oprah impersonation. I like it. Quick question, I'm, Jody. I'm- so we were talking about, as Nicole was asking about, you know, his family and everything. For your own mom, how has she you know, gone on with life and processed and moved forward as, you know, you guys, sounds like you guys have a a good relationship. What has life looked like for her Mm. after something as intense as as that situation? I mean, I guess I could say she handled it the best she could. And one of the things that Mike Barnett told her whenever he informed her about the hospital report coming back positive, as far as, you know, DNA inside of me, that she needed to remain calm and she was able to do that. And to me, that was very comforting. Mm-hmm. Now today, I mean, she doesn't even want to look at, you know, pictures of, or the, the video, she turns her head. She don't want to see his face. I mean, a, a guy does something like that to your family. I could see where it would, you know, definitely upset you. Oh yeah. Um, I got a call from people from investigation discovery, the discovery ID channel. And they were asked if my mother would be interested in doing an interview for the show we did called unraveled. And I said, look, I said she did ESPN, and she told me that that was the last interview she was ever going to do. And I, I told the people from Investigation Discovery, I said, I won't even ask her. Yeah. And they were like, why? I'm mm-hmm. like, um, because she gets upset. And the guy was like, why does she get upset? I'm like, I don't know, because her husband murdered someone after who raped her child. Exactly. And I'm like, yeah. mm, maybe I'm like, that's that why. Tends- Talking about that tends to upset her. And he goes, oh, I wasn't thinking. I mean, like, she'll take a half of Xanax and be a zombie for a couple of days. I mean, and I, I'm like, I'm not even going to do that anymore. But so, so, I mean, she, you know, she doesn't like to talk about it. She's not like me. Yeah. Um, right. So, but I mean, she, like I said, she's handled it the best she could. Yeah. Yeah. And good for you for respecting that. Oh, totally. 
Is that, you know, that is hard for, for her, I know. And, and for you to stand in the gap and, and not push her too far. I mean, that's, I, are you kidding me? But, like, let's intoxicate her and take advantage of her. Like, okay, <laughs> that sounds a little uh, familiar. Sounds like a little Bill Cosby. We're speaking of Montgomery County, <sighs> Pennsylvania. Yeah. Woo! Oh, I know you want to talk about that. <laughs> Actually, I just got back from uh, Pennsylvania. I went up there in October and the assistant ADA who helped prosecute Bill Cosby was the person that introduced me to the little training we had. So that was kind of interesting. Oh, wow. That's great. Well, thinking about back to your book, um, what are some of the most passionate topics you, you share about? Like, I know you really care about um, open communication with kids and parents and for caretakers, noticing red flags. Definitely unpack some of that for our listeners. And then just some of the other topics that, that you really liked writing about. The, 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 the one thing I'm the most passionate about is that even though someone goes through something as terrible as childhood sexual abuse with the proper support, and I, I, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm doing air quotes right now, mm-hmm. with the proper support, I think someone can be okay. Yeah. And that support can come from family. It can com- come from professional counselors. It can come from clergy. It can come from spiritual leaders. It can come from voodoo dolls. Wherever you get it from, it could be... It, it, you can overcome something as, as terrible as childhood sexual abuse. That's my number one message. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, my counselor, I would give credit to my mother for that. I did go get professional help because I was told I, I needed to because of a pending trial with my father. Uh-huh. Um, but after about six months, the, the psychiatrist told my mother, like, I don't need to see him anymore. He's going to be fine. Mm. Um, that's number one. An- another thing is for so hold parents- up for right there though. I had the same experience, but it was because I was faking it, and later I needed to revisit it when I was ready. You never really, you never really circled back to counseling again, right? No, never yeah. did. Well, you're a better person than me. Just kidding. Well, no, <laughs> Yeah. No, but really, that that didn't seem to ever really come back up for you. Your advocacy work and your mom really continued to carry you through as your biggest support, right? I mean, I just jumped back into to what my life would have been had I not taken karate. I mean, I got back into playing sports. I, yeah. That summer, I played, played Little League Baseball. Mm-hmm. And uh, when uh, middle school rolled around to seventh grade, I played football. I played on the basketball team. Yeah, uh, you found again, your own kind of I, yeah. healthy outlets. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm not going to say it wasn't a process. I compare it in the book to the grieving process. Like, I mean, it takes time. I mean, you just don't heal overnight. I mean, you have uh, to work yeah. through it. Yeah. But you, And another thing that I, I guess uh, the, the one good thing I had was with my father shooting him, mm-hmm. it wasn't like now where they don't name victims. I mean, they were like, oh, I mean, my dad's lawyer was on TV saying, oh, Jeff was giving me gay magazines to read, which wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were still naming me. It wasn't a secret. So, I mean, I kind of had to face that at 12. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, you, you could have faked it. And then when you got a little older, looking back, going, oh, wait, this is messed up. Now I, I need to revisit this and, yeah. and, and, and process and work my way through it. But, uh-huh. again, it's no matter at what time you get it. I mean, it might be 20 years down the road. But if you get the proper support and treatment, you can work through it and you can uh, have a healthy mental state of mind is, mm-hmm. is basically what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, 
another thing as far as the book is, is what parents need to look for. Um, if there's an adult that wants to spend more time with your child than you, that's probably a red flag. So another thing is, I mean, watch your kid. I mean, no, I mean again, 90% of kids are abused by someone known to the family, you, me. So you, you can't really control who they're around all the time, but do as good as you can. Mm-hmm. Don't let your children alone. If a, if a coach wants to give, oh, I'll give them a ride home after practice, don't do it. Yeah. If, you know, uh, I mean, just certain things, just be aware of uh, the behaviors of your child. Like my personality changed. Like I, like I said, I was playing sports. I was doing football, basketball, baseball, and soccer. I would leave a football game to go to a soccer game. And all of a sudden, I quit all those sports to focus on karate. Well, it wasn't because I wanted to. It's because Jeff made me. Mm-hmm. So if, mm-hmm. if, if changes in the behavior, if you notice, like, personality changes, you know, regressive behavior, wet in the bed, maybe, uh, you know, some type of obvious signs, like an STD. I mean, those are certain things that, you know, then you're not questioning it. But mm-hmm. just be aware and, and just be involved in your children and have that open communication with your children. Read them a book. They got books that you can get at a young age and you can read them about touch and safety. And you don't want to put the emphasis on them. Like, I don't want to tell an eight-year-old, look, it's up to you to keep yourself from being sexually abused. I mean, I think the adults need to take responsibility for that. Absolutely. But it doesn't hurt to still have that communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just asking questions, you know, it doesn't have to be direct about sexual abuse, but just asking the questions, right, about the people that they are engaging with, the adults that do seem to show some interest in them, asking just roundabout questions about that, right? I had a friend of mine call me the other day, and she's like, is this creepy? And her cousin started dating somebody, mm-hmm. and the cousin asked my friend, if they could take her kids to the zoo, I'm like, uh, yeah, that's, that's extra creepy. Like, why mm-hmm. would you want to take somebody else's kids to the zoo? Um, now I, in, in full disclosure, a couple of years ago, my brother was taking his kids to the zoo and I said, Hey, I want to come with you because if a 47 year old man's walking around the zoo by himself, that's going to be a little creepy. So I made sure I went with my little brother just so, so I wouldn't look stupid because I hadn't been to the zoo in a while and I wanted to go to the zoo. Yeah. But you know, for the most part, you just pay attention, be aware, and have that open communication with your children. Well, and something, Nicole, that you've even helped me with is with my little boy. He's five now, and I'm trying to navigate and protect him, but not be that psycho mom. And I definitely don't want to plant things in his head, you know, to make him create this story that's not real. But, Nicole, you even helped coach me on saying, well... How do you feel when you're around that person? Mm-hmm. Or do they ever say anything that's kind of weird? Or, you know, and kind of just asking those generalized questions and then they can formulate their own answer from their own experience. Yeah. So we're still having that talk mm-hmm. um, just so I'm getting in his world and making sure that he's safe. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Exactly. Because I said it. Duh. I mean. <laughs> no, but it is the honest truth. It, yeah. You know, it's not going just cutting to the chase because kids don't know, even know how to handle that. Even but though it, my mommy claws want to come out and do that sometimes yeah. when I'm like, who is that weirdo standing yeah. at the corner of the playground yeah. that has no kids with you? him? Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, did you say anything? I've already yeah. called the cops. They're on yeah. their way. You know, so I'm like, all right, reel it back in. <laughs> and how did, what yeah. did they say? You know, but, but that's slow, the questioning, the getting to know, how do you feel? That's also whether something's happened or not, it's still creating a trust yeah, and a bond and a relationship with your child yeah. or or whoever is in your life that you mm-hmm. care about um, to where they may unpack it on their own. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're the trusted individual. Yeah, absolutely. Jody, will you talk a little bit more about how um, you were saying 
like the coping and like the healing is a lot like the grieving process. Was there any more to that that you kind of shared in the book about your own journey? I don't, I mean, I'm sure there's more in the book because of the, you know, the words or whatever, you have the opportunity to sit down and, mm-hmm. and go into a little bit more detail, but not really. I mean, I just compare it to the grieving process. I mean, yeah. don't think it's like you can take a magic pill and you'll be okay. But I mean, a lot of it is trying to understand or comprehend why that happened to you. Yeah. One of the things that I didn't experience, okay, is uh, the guilt that a lot of survivors experience, but I do address it. Yeah. For example, um, I mentioned in April, like Jeff started, he performed ball sex on me. And I, I didn't know why he wanted to. He told me he was going to do it before he did it, but I didn't know why he wanted to do it because I was 10 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And then there's a part in the book where I feel like I'm very honest and I'm like, okay, it took me about two seconds because it, the body responds like a body responds. Like it felt wonderful. But I also mentioned, don't think that that's something in the back of my mind that I was enjoying. Cause I wasn't, there was this cognitive dissonance between physical pleasure and what in the world this man was doing to me. Yeah. But as a 10 year old, I didn't know that was going to be the effect. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of times when, uh, sexual abuse victims are younger, and let's say it happens over an extended period of time, your body is going to respond, and it, it, there will be some physical pleasure, and especially if, a, if a, someone's older, you know, or like in my case, you know, him performing oral sex on me, I mean, there was that physical pleasure, and so I was old enough to know that that was wrong. Mm-hmm. If someone if it's, it's so young that they get sexually abused, and that goes on for a, a long time, and then they get into their teens and they, they start wondering, like, my, why, why did I enjoy that? Why did, but that's just a normal response that a body will do. So mm-hmm. um, I, never, I never had that experience. So I was lucky. But that's why a lot of, you know, victims start cutting their arms up because they, they're, 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 they're internalizing that guilt. Like, I shouldn't have enjoyed that. But, yeah. um, but there's a self-hatred there. over that towards your own body. And then that becomes this dissociation, this disconnect from your own body because you hate that your body did that and it creates that shame. So it's a way of overcoming that. But I'm glad you didn't have that. But also the whole understanding, I think, is very important to the healing And like you said, I think the grieving process, the comparison to the grieving process probably is similar to like, you know, the highs and lows of healing. Right. So maybe your journey and you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, maybe your journey, it sometimes felt like fine and you could look back on what happened to you. And it was almost like it wasn't your story with someone else's. But then later on in life, it was it it did become painful. Maybe there were times you looked at it and it felt really close to home and, and maybe you needed to talk to somebody about something. Does it feel like that? Or has it always just kind of been okay for you? Well, I can't, well, kind of the mess up part. Okay. Cause I mean, I've been on record saying I didn't want daddy to shoot Jeff. And at the time I was upset that Jeff had died. Okay. So I actually was grieving while trying to, you know, so yeah. I was, had that double dip. Yep. But no, there definitely were highs and lows, especially mainly when I was, uh, you know, 12 years old. Um, there would be times where I'd get really depressed and I'd want to sleep all day. But okay. like I said, eventually, as the summer rolled around and I started getting back into normal teenager or yeah. I wasn't even a teenager yet, 12-year-old behavior, playing Little League, being around my peers, being around my friends, um, I was able to move through it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But as an adult, I've never really... You know, maybe other than I am 47 and single and I've, uh, you know, had one serious girlfriend in my life and I, I 
identify as a non-practicing heterosexual, maybe that has something to do with it, but I doubt it. It's just because I'm, I don't want kids. So I, like, what's the point? <laughs> and maybe the reason why I don't want kids is because of what happened to me when I was younger. But, yeah. you know, or maybe it's I've seen the trauma my mother's been through because my older brother was involved in a car wreck where he was in, in the hospital for six weeks and he broke his neck and all the bones in his face. And I was kidnapped. And mm. uh, my little brother, I had to pull him out of the bottom of the pool. He drowned and I had to save his life. And, you know, mm. uh, I've seen all the trauma my mother's Shoo. gone through with her kids. So I'm like, yeah. you know what? You know, I lost my cat last year. I'm good with that. <laughs> you know, children are so vulnerable and, you know, it's a huge job to protect them, empower them, allow them to be their own self, have relationships. And then you got to pr- protect them from predators. Yeah. And then they're going to turn on you when they're about 14. <laughs> Don't tell me that. Oh, <laughs> I've heard you talk before about the courage to heal versus permission to heal. Could you share a little bit about your thoughts on that? Well, I just made the comment that there's a book called The Courage to Heal. Mm-hmm. Very okay? popular. One of the first very, ones to ever come out on this topic. Yep. Exactly. So it's very popular. Yes. And I just I just made the, the offhand remark that it, it should be titled Permission to Heal, because I don't feel like sexual abuse victims or uh, give themselves permission to heal. I know this mm-hmm. one, I'm not going to say no names, this one uh, prominent advocate who constantly just talks about the worst day of their life. And okay, I understand, but you know, give me more. I'm a survivor. I want to know, okay, other than what happened to you, how did you move through it? Like we've just been talking about, how did you get through? How did you um, become who you are? How yeah. can I get over this? Right. You know? So right. I, I don't feel like sexual abuse victims are given. I've seen, I've seen parents who've lost children in better mental states than people have been sexually abused. Mm. And I'm like, mm, wow. you know, That's so true. Yeah, I mean, it's something you carry with you the rest of your life, but it's also something that we can gain strength from, right? And um, we can understand that we've survived and there's a huge life ahead of us to embrace and there's hope and there's healing and there's community and all of that. And sometimes that gets left out. So that's so true. Well, I mean, the whole time I've known you, you've never used your experience to gain any sympathy from me. And I don't think I've ever done that with you. And no. I, I don't think I've ever done it with anybody. No. Um, so that, that to me is, is the message that I think survivors mm-hmm. need to hear is that, you know what? Yeah. It's okay if you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. You know, I think in this day and age of so much, you know, self-help and self-care and all that, there is a lot of it's okay to not be okay. But you're very, very right in the fact that it's okay to actually be okay and and to lend your hope and your strength to the next person and to embrace that when you're at that point. And I think that's something that you've done your your entire life that that I've known you, you know. Yeah, and I think that that's why we've been friends for so long is because that's what you've done as well. Mm, Yeah, well, thank you. One difference between us is the fact that you're a guy. So I'm wondering, do you have a lot of male survivors reach out to you? I think that the healing journey is different for guys for different reasons. And it's also completely similar (laughs) in a hundred reasons. So would you just talk a little bit about that? 
Well, I'll, I'll share one story about an old co-worker of mine. She was uh, sexually abused by her cousin. Okay, mm-hmm. Her cousin would make her perform oral sex on her. And so in her marriage, that was something that she didn't want to do uh, mm-hmm. with her husband. And her husband didn't understand that it was triggering some type of bad memory with her. And it just wasn't, you know, the average uh, not wanting to do it. Hey, now that we're married, mm. um, that it, it went deeper than that. And so one of the things in my adult sexual experiences, I haven't had to go through the same thing. Like if a, if a female is sexually abused by a, a older male, that act she would be doing with her husband is similar not wasn't the same with me. So I don't have to revisit that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, then the other thing is, as far as the male survivors, really, ironically enough, um, my little brother usually gets them more than me. I don't think a lot of people feel comfortable telling me about their abuse, but they tell my little brother all the time because huh. they, cause they know what happened to me. Wow. Mm, okay. Huh. But another thing, do, too, they, do you think they're afraid of like triggering you or like, why do why do they go to him instead of you for that? I think yeah. that they're, they're worried about how like they don't want to offend me maybe, oh, yeah. and, yeah. and bur- burden me with that. Or I I'll feel see. like the only reason why I'm telling them is because of they know what happened to me. So they don't want to bring it up, but they'll go, mm-hmm. they go to him a lot. Okay. Um, I say a lot. I mean, he's Enough. had more than me. Let me just say that more. Yeah. More than me. Wow. I will say this that a lot of, about a female is like what opened up to me. I had a woman just mm. last Saturday. I had a little book signing at this little public library in a little town called St. Gabriel. And mm. they said, Oh, well, this woman's going to introduce you. Well, when she got up there to introduce me, she's like, I've never told anybody this, oh. but I was coming from abusive background as well. And so, I mean, she disclosed and one of her friends walked up to me and was like, we've never known that about her. We've oh. known her for 10 years. And wow. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So well, but, yeah, it, it, your uh, story I, gives people strength and, and gives them, permission to share i hope yeah and, uh, you know what I, permission to heal mm-hmm. that's true because sharing really is the first step to healing anyway so do you think that there's a big difference for men between men and women boys and girls you know in their healing journey or i feel like it's harder for guys to talk about it and that's why i've always admired you so much because you've been so outspoken but i don't find that in a lot of a lot of male survivors. I think it's extra hard for them to talk about it. But other than that, and maybe you don't agree with that and maybe share that too, but well, are there other other hurdles you think that might be different compared to, you know, like Mary or I who as a girl went I'm, through this? I'm going to make this qualification now, and I, it's, in the, it's in the book at the very beginning. When I'm speaking of what we're talking about right now, I'm speaking as males as the perpetrator. And I do want to acknowledge that I understand that females also do perpetrate yeah. sexual violence. So I, I, but I want to just say strictly for my purposes, uh, the majority of the perpetrators are male. That's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So whenever you talk about male survivors who were sexually abused by a male, you do have that homosexual uh, stigma that goes along with that. Like, I mean, you don't have, I couldn't tell you how many times people have wondered whether I was gay or not. And I'm like, no, you know, I mean, I was with a man. I didn't like it. Uh, I didn't want to be, it wasn't voluntarily, it wasn't consensual, but no, I I did not like it. Um, And I I had one guy, uh, he was a bartender at this uh, place in Irving, Texas, when I moved out there when I was 20 years old. And he was like, man, I want to talk to you. And I was like, all right. So we got to talking and he identified as a gay male 
but he was also sexually abused when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And he was wanting to know whether that turned him. Aww. And I was like, no, I don't think that that would have done it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, did you like being sexually abused? He said no. And I'm like, well, there you go. There's your answer. Um, so I think he kind of had like this this problem in his mind that maybe that this is something that turned him gay. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, it's not that, something that you can do there. Like, I mean, uh, so I think males have that burden to go with, too. So I think that that's why a lot of males are very quiet. And yeah. I was talking with with Jim Clementi. He's the former FBI profiler who uh, wrote the Clementi report about the Sandusky situation at Penn State. Yeah. And uh, he said that he thinks that the statistics on males being sexually abused are probably underreported because parents are more likely to let their little 10-year-old go off with a scout leader than their 10-year-old girl, the 10-year-old boy go off with a scout leader instead of their 10-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. So I was like, that makes a lot of sense because, Mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't nothing for us to go on a karate trip, dress, take us to Houston Mm -hmm. and, you know, get eight of us in a, you know, two rooms, adjoining rooms, four people in each bed, you know, because you had a two double bed. So that that what my parents were like, sure. Oh yeah, go ahead. My dad even went on one of the trips with us. Mm -hmm. So, well, yeah, I think our generation too, for some reason, and I don't know if this is like, country Ohio like culture or if this is everywhere but I think our generation of parents for some reason felt like it was fine for boys to be sexually active even at you know 12 13 14 years old with whoever that that was just like oh well um you know part of growing up even if it was a teacher you know and but then that was like a, an overprotection of the girls, but then the boys just letting them run free and run wild and all that and not thinking about their age, their vulnerabilities, who was praying and grooming them, right? And I think today it's a little bit different as far as I think they're more understanding of the power dynamics of grooming, of protecting boys and girls and gender across the board. I don't know. I just, I've seen that so many times and, you know, I've quite a few survivor friends who have said, you know, they, my parents were so protective of me and wouldn't let me do this or that. But then my brothers were able to just run wild. And in fact, then my brothers even were experimenting on me. Meanwhile, banging girlfriends in their room, you know, all these things. And I just think culturally it's been a little backward for a while, but I'm hoping that the balance is coming back. I mean, I won't say it's great, but it's gotten better definitely from, you know, 1984. I know mm. um, when I was in, in Pennsylvania, I went to this meeting by, uh, it was called SNAP, like the Survivors Network yeah. for those abused by priests. Uh-huh. And um, this guy was talking and he said he first became aware of the Catholic Church basically shipping pedophile priests to a different parish once they got caught. He goes, the first case uh, came up was in 1984 in Lafayette, Louisiana. Mm. Well, Lafayette, Louisiana is about... 50 miles, maybe 60 miles from Baton Rouge. And 1984 was the year that my father shot Jeff. So I'm like, okay, so they would have been watching the news, mm. local news here in Lafayette. And so I went up to the guy and I said, do you remember what month that was? Because I wanted to know, like, if, if by any chance my father shooting Jeff somehow may have played a part in the kid coming forward, which I felt it might have. Mm, and yeah. he, he said – Yes, October of 1984. And I was like, okay, so I think one of the things that happened after my dad shot the guy on TV is then you really got sexual abuse awareness um, out. 
whereas before it really wasn't spoken about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think the the one the one good thing that came out of Jeff not having his day in court was that it now became a national conversation as far as you know what parents should do or could do to protect their children. Yeah. And you know, having that shooting and I mean a lot of people you can go I bet if we went to YouTube right now to that one video, um, that's the most popular. It's got over twenty million views. I bet it has been less than a week someone's comment about, you know, my dad being a hero. Mm. I mean, you can go to Twitter and anytime like a sexual assault case comes up, mm-hmm. uh, someone will mention, hey, do you know the name Gary Floche? I mean, <laughs> wow. You know what, though? Great. Because I'm so tired of people defending the abuser or like you said, saying, well, what if Jody lied? Like, thank you for for believing that Gary was believing his son and did what he needed to do. I mean, right. in a weird way, but I'm so tired of, you know, not believing survivors and all of that. At least people are, aren't coming back with those kind of comments. At least they're supportive of oh. your story and believing you as a, as a little kid. So goodness. the worst is, Oh, she just wants attention. Oh yeah. That's what we want. We want, we want that. <laughs> yeah. <Ugh>. Yeah. <laughs> It's mind-boggling. That, people can... uh, we can't get any other attention, so we're just going to make this up about this athlete or that yeah. you know, person. You know, speaking of athletes, I think it's interesting that you were molested, you know, raped, abducted, kidnapped, all that by your coach, right? But then you subsequently threw yourself into athletics. So sports became still a coping. For some, it, that might have driven them from athletics altogether. Like, I don't want to ever be involved in that. I could never trust a coach again. You know, that that role would have been so painful, triggering, um, vulnerable. But you you didn't allow that to hold you back. But in fact, it was part of your healing. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. Because when I was considering my dedications, I almost dedicated to all the other coaches that I had growing up who didn't molest me. Mm. Now that doesn't say that all the other coaches that I had growing up weren't, you know, some type of, you know, sexual predator, but they sure. didn't pick me. Mm. Um, one of the, one of the interesting things too, is I had a, I had a quote unquote book signing at my friend's bar. Mm. The name of her bar is the bookstore. So we just thought it'd be kind of like a little neat little uh, oh, yeah. play on words because the bookstore. So we'll have a book signing. That's and cool. so my, my high school basketball coach came up to, the book signing. Now, this man is in the Louisiana Hall of Fame, the high school Hall of Fame for being a great coach. And he came up with his book and told me, Jody, I couldn't put it down. It was that good. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, I mean, it, it was nice to, that, you know, he, you know, one of my coaches that, you know, never took advantage of me, read the book and came up there and, and, and took the time to come, you know, basically thank me for writing it and get me to sign it and, so that was awesome. That's really cool. Hmm. I think it's really Me, great when. I will, I will say, wait, I will say this because I know you're a basketball player. Yeah. Um, I will say the three years that I started varsity basketball, none of that contributed to his Hall of Fame appearance. I can promise you that we were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've seen some clips of you. You were killing it. Actually, out there. Um, when LeBron James was in high school, their team was ranked by ESPN nationally number one. Mm. His team, my old high school, was ranked number two behind LeBron James' team. No way. Yep. What? I mean, since we are going to make that Ohio connection, or <laughs> is it an LA connection now? 
Well, we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> too soon, too soon. Yeah, a little too soon there, son. <laughs> well, so I guess in wrapping up, are there any other parts about your book that you'd like people to know about? They can go to Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, just search Why Gary Why. And you can get it a paperback for 19, I think they're still, it's on sale for 1990, I think. But if you're like me and you're a Kindle-aholic, mm. you can get the Kindle version for $9.99. Okay. You like that? See, I got to hold my book. I got to smell it. I want to put it on my shelf in like rainbow color order. It's just a whole thing. I can't do the Kindle. I love my Kindle. Really? I, like I said, I have, I got two in my car. Uh. I got four in the house. And I actually had to put myself on a restriction, like, okay, no more Kindles. I can't buy any more Kindles. <laughs> wow. And I think there's a lot of uh, a good information, not just, you know, my story of uh, abduction and abuse. and But I think there's a lot of good information for people out there. Yeah. Well, I think your story alone is just super interesting and intriguing. It's unique. It's very inspiring, especially just knowing you and this journey you've been on since then, um, just to still be so outspoken and all of that. But also you're right. Like there's so much from your story and from just your wisdom and working with survivors throughout the years that we can tap into um, as parents and as caretakers and just as good human beings to be able to look out for children in our midst and, and be a part of the change that's, I think, coming in this generation. So I personally would like an autograph copy. So PayPal? <laughs> uh, yeah, if you if you re- really would like a signed copy, you could go to my name and last name, Jody Ploche at gmail.com that's j-o-d-y-p-l-a-u-c-h-e at gmail.com and if you want send 2375 thank you for your voice thank you for having me and it's good talking to you and don't be a stranger thanks jody take care you too bye Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.